Welcome to this episode of the Engage and Quit podcast. This podcast is a resource that's designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is John Sikotowski. I'm one of the hosts here on the podcast. And this week, you're going to hear a recording from a Sunday growth class that was done this most recent Sunday, July 29th, 2018. In this class, Pastor Nick and his assistant, Jill Reese are going to be talking about the class topic, which is Escaping Babel. The subtitle to that class is How a Biblical Vision of Sexuality, Marriage, Singleness, Romance, Career, Gender, Children, and Human Development Can Save You from Decades of Future Misery. So, as you can guess from that subtitle, they're going to be covering a lot of content. So without further ado, let's jump in. started. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, my name is Jill Reese, and this is Nick Gibson, as you probably know. Um, I'm Nick's assistant, and so that's who I am. I work at the church. Um, that's and, a great start of talking like you're my colleague. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I'm just trying Jill to Jill helps with a lot of my writing research. Like, if you see a blog that I allegedly wrote, usually that means that there was some chicken scratch yeah. on something, and I, as I was going through my stuff, I couldn't bear to throw away my brilliant thought, but I didn't have time to actually write anything coherent, and so I handed it to her, and then she either herself or gave it to someone else to turn it into like a coherent set of paragraphs. And so like when she says she's my assistant, that's what that means. It means she helps me with like very, like she's essentially a research assistant. So she does a lot of, she does a lot of editing for me too, yeah. Yeah, and so we yeah. also want to welcome you to our first live recording of the Engage and Equip podcast, because oh. this is being recorded, and it'll be on the mm-hmm. podcast, hopefully, as well. Yep. So here's how it's going to work. It's interview style, and we would love to have questions from you guys, but we're going to first give Nick some time to frame what he's even talking about. So mm-hmm. I will then open it up for questions. So if you've got questions, save them until that time. So, yeah. So, Nick, what... Why is this called Escaping Babel? So, okay, so if you think about the story of Babel in uh, Genesis 11, there's two ways to interpret that story. And the way people often interpret it when they read it is, so there's, there's all these people multiplying on the earth, and they say, let's build a big tower and city for our name. And so they, they set their mind to, to do this work, and they're doing a really good job. And then God says, look, right, if, if man puts his mind together, right, he can do anything. And so we should go and confuse his languages mm-hmm. so that this doesn't happen, basically, right? And so God confuses the languages of the people. They can't complete the tower because they can't even talk to each other. It falls into disrepair and the people scatter throughout the mm-hmm. earth. And so they, they're not brought together in this humanistic oneness or whatever, right? So there's two ways to interpret that. One is to interpret it humanistically, that, if, that the gods are our enemy of our absolute maximal utility or whatever. And um, when we were threatening God, when God felt threatened by our God-likeness, when we all worked together as one, he scattered us about so that he could stay God. And that's, that's the kind of God the Bible talks about, right? Mm-hmm. And that would be how like Richard Dawkins would interpret that biblical story, right? Um, and you can see there's markers in there because when God says, look, man can do anything if he puts his mind to it, it feels that way a little bit. Yeah. 
However, the Bible is like one book. Like some people like to dice up early Genesis into these unrelated stories that like some mosaic editor just kind of stuck together sort of haphazardly, but they're not at all. They're absolutely united. And so when human beings are created, God is very specific with that. Mm -hmm. He says, be fruitful and multiply. That means have babies is what that means, okay? It, fruitful there does not mean be good at your job. It means have offspring. And then he says, go into the world and subdue it and take dominion over it. So there's a twofold, what's sometimes called the cultural mandate. Because human beings are, are singly spatial, they're not omnispatial. You can't be everywhere at once as a human being. You're in one place. And you can basically take care of a couple square hundred yards. Okay? You need lots of humans to subdue a globe. Does that make sense? And so there's this very strong need for, their, for fertility, right? And secondly, there is the work of the subduing itself, the cultivation of this creation that God has made, right? And so the name and glory of God and the care of God is supposed to go out in all the world through the human beings multiplying and taking dominion, right? And that requires that they scatter and not gather in one place. And so the fundamental human cultural mandate, at least before the earth was sufficiently populated, was that human beings should go out into frontiers, essentially, and bring the intelligence of human cultivation to a world that had all this inert capacity in how God had created it. And what people did was the exact opposite. They said, no, instead, let's all come together in one place and build up, instead of bringing the glory of God out through the image of God through men and women going out and doing what we're actually told to do. And so it's very common when human beings believe that they know better than God, one, or two, they lose out of memory what God has spoken. Right? And so they either think they know better than God or they don't know what God said, so they have to make something up. They start doing what they think is progress, and it is horrific regress. Do you understand? And so... When it comes to a number of things in the lives of human beings, the very deep things of life, things that are so deep, you think you know about them, but you can't articulate them. Things so deep that if I tell you they're not true, you'll dismiss me. You'll just be like, that could, it'd be like I just said gravity isn't a thing. And you'll be like, oh, that couldn't possibly be. Not because you really know it, but because you were taught so young you sucked it in from the culture. It was never really explained to you. And it seems like it's assumed in all the normal structures of your life. Your life has always been structured around it. And so you can't even really imagine and you've never even contemplated anything different. And so, and because the word of God has fallen out of all memory on these things. And so here we are. And so I think that's what, like you were saying, God frustrated Babel. Yeah. Like he frustrated the people. He made their lives miserable. And so I think, right. I, like. That's an act of love. God lovingly <laughs> dispenses misery. <laughs> on the lives of people when they act foolishly. Yeah, yeah. and, and right. so we still feel that way today. We feel frustrated and miserable. Right, I think modern, secular yeah. modernity and its worldliness is producing misery. Mm -hmm. But the reason why I think this kind of class is important is because, because it is bound up in, in humanness, maleness and femaleness, and the trajectory of human life and all mm -hmm. that, by the time you figure out what's going on, it's late in the game. Yeah, you might feel miserable like, when you're 40 or right. yeah so you might not realize like I'm 28 and I I've fallen into right. some believing some of these things but haven't felt miserable then until I got into it a little yeah. deeper <laughs> and so yeah right so yeah. let me give two very quick examples yeah. one is um, when psychologists interview women right in their 50s 
virtually all of them say that the locus of meaning and happiness in their life is their family. Virtually none of them say their career. And for virtually all of them, it is primarily in many ways bound up with their children, particularly grown children, right? And their hope for grandchildren, whatever, right? Now, those women, if you would have asked them when they were 13, 18, 21, 26, 32, what their, how they would feel when they were 50 and what the locus of their life, they would, none of them would have said that. None of them. They would have been like, I'm going to be the blah, blah, blah. Like, it takes 20 years to realize that work isn't cool. Yeah, like that it's that? not fulfilling, it's not this great mm-hmm. thing, and that like when men used to go to work, like they didn't have a better life. They had a worse life, right? They die at, men die at work, men break their backs at work, mm-hmm. men die of stress early at work. Like mm-hmm. it was not something that like women didn't get to do. It was horrible, right? Now in the industri- in, in the industrial age it was terrible. It's only in the information age that anybody could believe that. Like before when it was like, okay, here's a stick, Go out to that field and make things grow to eat. Like nobody would be like, well, well, you know, how dare you say I can't do that, right? And the women did have to do it because work was so inefficient that both men and women had to do it just to survive, mm-hmm. right? And the minute they didn't, women stopped working. Okay, that's like that's human anthropology 101. The minute a human society makes a plow good enough mm-hmm. so that both people don't have to slave in the sun all day, the woman stops doing it. That's called progress. Okay, <laughs> And so that was understood throughout the agricultural age and into the industrial age, because the industrial age was no picnic, right? Mm-hmm. Only in the information age, post-feminism and with the huge increase in education and information-based jobs, did women enter the workforce anything like men, right? So that's one example. So like women in their 50s mainly care about whether or not they have kids and whether their kids are doing well and how their family is and what their friends, right? Well, you've got you to have children back here. Right? If you think when you're 50 what you're going to care about is whether you're neck and neck with men at work, you're going to act very differently when you're 21 than if you know when you're 52 you're going to, you're going to care about whether or not you have kids. Yeah, and and think, generally speaking, those women are happier if they have three rather than two, yeah. for example. I think some of that, so I'm a woman. You're not. But, I'm not. Um, <laughs> I also work, but, but part-time. Anyway, that's beside the point. But in the flow, so what you're saying is, so what are you saying in the flow of the life that's important? Because I right. think coming out, this is one of the cultural things that like, we hear without even realizing we're hearing it, is that like, when you're in college, you, you hear and it's implicit that you're going like, to go out and change the world and like, have this really important career. And, oh, yeah. and like, you're going to change everything around you and it's gonna be super purposeful I mean like Millennials like purpose is like the thing you know we've all heard that so like what they don't have any philosophy of objective purpose but feeling like their lives are purposeful is incredibly important yeah so why is that when they're not the first ones that was true of Gen Xers too Mm -hmm. it's just we nobody cares about us because we didn't it's like boomers to Millennials you know but like that was true for Gen X like we were the ones like we were the ones who invented like the angsty 90s movies of like idiotic like romances that don't work, that were full of promiscuity, that somehow you were supposed to find meaning in that. Like all those stupid films were from like Gen Xers, right? Mm-hmm. Or were about Gen Xers. And so that's not a, really a very new thing with but, millennials. Yeah, either. but what is yeah, like. Yeah, so you're bringing up a bunch of things. Okay, so there's two, <laughs> so there's two things. Okay, so hold on to the millennials imagining they're gonna change the world. Yeah, like, all right. And by, and by millennials in this context, all we mean is younger people. Yes. And this is true of most generations of young. This is definitely true of boomers. 
You know, when they were when they were like younger people, like they were like hippies and they were gonna change the world and stuff. And like basically every successive generation of young people is egged on by professors who don't live in the real world to think they're gonna change the world, and they divert them from real life into worshiping them and their ideas, which are usually horrifically destructive. So like if you think of almost every movement in the history of the world that has destroyed millions of people's lives, it is almost always started by students and almost always started by students responding to the teaching of their professors. Okay? Um, if you look at both Hitler and Stalin and all of the communist leaders, all of the sort of fascist and um, communist leaders of the 20th century, all collectivist ideologies, all forms of socialism, right? All of them basically said, if I can control the minds of the young, the young will rise up and they'll revolt and all this kind of stuff because they don't understand the right ordering of life. And so they won't be like, look, riots are really counterproductive and they, you know, they won't understand any of that stuff. Um, and so they'll like rise up and they'll do whatever's necessary to change the fundamental social order, which is what we want to do, right? And so that's why you had Hitler youth and Stalin youth camps and all that kind of stuff. And that's why everybody who was in a position of authority who had any sense about how human life functioned in civil society got sent off to death camps, especially in so the Soviet Union, right? And today it's more subtle. It's <laughs> but mildly. Yeah, I mean, but it's but I mean, subtle. we have we have like there. I don't know if you've heard. This, there are like anti-fascist yeah. kid camps now where they learn how to riot. Like that's in the last five years. Right. And like it's kind of ironic because that's fascism, and they just call it. It's like it's so Orwellian. You put anti in front of something, and like you're not that thing. But don't get me started on that. That's, okay. I mean, my point was so you've got you've got the same thing on the right with some of yeah. the neo the neo white supremacy mm -hmm. folks. Um, and that has its counter, that has its, its counter in all the racial groups in America. Mm -hmm. Like Latinos have their like, I mean La Raza, I don't know if you know what that means in English. It means the race. Like we are the race. It's horrifically racist. And then there are certain, there are certain kinds of black power movements that are mm -hmm. black ascendancy, black racist. And then there are white supremacists and those are certain groups and those, those groups always rise in moments of interracial dysfunction. Mm -hmm which flows from not having any unifying civil idea. Because tolerance is not a sufficient unifying civil idea. You have, a civilization requires multiple ideas. So okay, quick rant on that. So in America, if you are intolerant by anybody's estimation, the reason why people go like nuclear and they clutch their pearls and they gasp is because we only have one rule in America that everybody's supposed to accept. Every, because we're like this melting pot and like nobody's culture is in the ascendancy and we don't want privilege and stuff like that. We don't have a culture. And so when you don't have a culture, you can't, you, you, the one rule is you can't be intolerant because otherwise you've got mass chaos. So like we've got this one rule that's above all this. Now that's not true in Japan, right? In Japan, because the culture is so homogenous, there's like 3,000 social rules, right? But you know what happens if you break one of them? Not much. Not much, because nobody feels that threatened because there's like 1,999 other social rules holding the social fabric together. So when you have a, homo a homogenous society in which there are many agreed upon social rules, if you break one of the rules, it's not that big a deal. If you have completely eviscerated your shared culture by which trust is formed between neighbors, and all you have is one frayed rule, if anybody even gets close to that rule, you have to go ballistic. Do you understand? That's why people say stuff and do stuff all the time that's not really intolerant. And you have to call it intolerance. People do stuff all the time that's not really racist, but people call it racist. They have to, because there's only one rule. We call it racism, homophobia, tolerance. We call it by different names, but it's basically like you need to stay in your lane 
and stay out of my lane. And I'll leave you alone and you leave me alone and we can't demand anything from each other, even though through our political system, in other words, we're going to demand a lot from each other. And so the whole thing is based on this unspoken hypocrisy that can't possibly function, which is why there's so much problem with it. Do you understand? And so like, then you enter young people who are amnesic of history because they've been taught none of it. And they haven't lived long enough to understand human nature. And no one can tell them what to do. And no one can tell them what to do. <laughs> because of that, what you said before about you can't. Right. Yeah, and young get people in on fundamentally believe yeah. they fundamentally believe the Rousseauian romantic ideal that um, that the reason why adults behave the way they do is not because they've grown wiser. It's because they've lost their innocence, they've lost their idealism, and they've become jaded, and they compromise. They sold out somewhere, right? And so. What, you, what youth requires in order for you to be noble is to never sell out, which means never compromise, which is a recipe for genocide. It's the most horrific human idea possible, right? The most important thing for young people to realize is they know nothing, right? And they have no idea how the world functions. They don't even know themselves. They have no idea what's going on inside of them. Like, you, are an, you as a human being are an extraordinarily complicated, difficult thing. You do not understand yourself. Like, you do not have yourself sorted out. And the idea that, like, you can do anything meaningful or purposeful in the world before you sort yourself out is crazy. Like, it is a recipe for harm. It's like trying to practice medicine without going to medical school at all. Like, you're not interested in biology. But, dang it, you are going to do surgery. And it's... It is a real problem. Okay, so now two of the areas w that we're supposed to talk about today where this has really gone sideways yeah. is in the understanding of what a human being is as a male or a female and the attendant realities on that, like becoming a husband and a wife, mm -hmm. becoming a parent, a mother and a father, all that. All of that has gotten really, really confused, including what, therefore, a marriage is between a man and a woman, right? What that is. And that got screwed up first in, like, the stuff that preceded no-fault divorce and all of that, right? And so it has nothing to do with gay people. Gay people didn't destroy marriage. Heterosexual people that didn't want to stay committed to people they couldn't get along with destroyed marriage, okay? Defining marriage wrongly doesn't help, but that's not what made marriage a problem. And then secondly, the idea that human beings live through life in a kind of transitional arc in which you are entering different seasons of life that are fundamentally different from each other and you are related to the people in those different time periods, though you never get to talk to them. Okay? So like if you're 24, there is a 50, there's likely a 52-year-old version of you out there in the ether somewhere that you are going to be someday. And she would tell you things, or he would tell you things if he got to talk to you right now. And it would probably be like, don't, don't do that. Or like <laughs> change your mind about this, or focus more on that. Does that make sense? And sometimes, because we don't see ourselves, we don't see ourselves in that arc. What, what we tend to do is we, we're trying to put off the arc as long as possible, and that's really bad for us in all kinds of ways, emotionally and biologically, and and in terms of the arc of how human lives generally develop. 
And what that produces is misery because the way human life works right now is we, we generally put off the big transitional sacrifices. Why? Because we don't want to sell out. We want to maintain our innocence. We want to stay idealistic. And whenever you get rid of opportunity for something concrete, it creates an enormous amount of stress, especially if you don't absolutely believe it's important, right? So that's why like when young people have to pick a major, they emotionally flip out and they can't handle anything. And they change their majors like nine times. Why? Because there's like, I don't know, maybe 200,000 jobs you could possibly do in your life. And the minute you pick a major, you're like narrowing it down to like five. And that's incredibly stressful. And the message is that you can only do one thing with your, forever with your life. Like you have to pick one thing that you're, I, feel, I felt like in People college, often think that, yeah. Yeah, the message sometimes in colleges can be like, what is the one career you're going to have? Right, and so if it's engineering, the then like, I'm gonna yeah. be an engineer. Like for the, or, yeah. And so the way some people avoid that is they like take liberal arts or psychology and they're like, well, I'm just gonna find myself. Yeah, you're gonna find yourself to the tune of forty dollars to $160,000 is what you're gonna do, which is gonna cripple the next three decades of your life. That's what's gonna happen. And, and here's the thing, you're not gonna find yourself. You're gonna go to a secular psychology department and they're, they're gonna screw you the heck up, like 10 times worse than you're screwed up right now, right? And then you add in like serial relationships and promiscuity and like unhealthy re codependent relationships, which tend to build in college because you live in dorms together and all that kind of stuff, which isn't really that healthy. And it's very unlike real life when you leave. Like college students come out profoundly more personally screwed up, knowing themselves much less than they went in, partly because of the ide ideologies they imbibed and partly because of the lifestyle that they lived in. They didn't, like most of them don't have jobs, for example. That's a problem. That's a problem. It's, it's an exercise in extended adolescence. That's a problem, mm -hmm. right? It's like, it's like basically becoming like a trust fund kid, except on money you're gonna have to pay back for four years. Because most college educations are essentially worthless economically speaking. The, the majority of college educations are economically worthless. Mm -hmm. so right? I, if, you're, if your major ended in studies, it's worthless, economically speaking, <laughs> right? Like if you took engineering or nursing, there's a few things like that that like have economic use. And though, therefore, what you paid for them, you might get something back. That's one thing, one thing that's so corrupt about the educational institution is that all majors cost the same. Think about that for a second. Think about how insane that is. If you're a women's studies major, you should pay like $1,000. Like you should pay $1,000 because you're, you're not getting anything economic out of that. You're studying something, it may enrich you. You may be able to tell people about those ideas. It might enrich the world somehow. I don't know, but you're not getting a job. So Nick, what are some other, like, so that is something that would lead to frustration later. What are some other things that are like relational or what are some other examples of things that we might not realize we're gonna end up in misery. So like, yeah, okay, so like dating or yeah, like. Yeah, okay, so there's, so, oh yeah. gosh, there's so many. Okay, yeah, so let me, let me give you one. Okay, so dating is, let's, let's go with dating for just a second yeah. so we can make people angry if they're not already upset. Um, <laughs> so one of the issues with dating is, um, it depends on how old you are, right? So if you're like 12 to, I'd say somewhere in the 17 neighborhood, your main, the main thing you need to do here is not screw yourself up horrifically emotionally. So stop believing in a bunch of romantic nonsense. Mm -hmm. Like, like, like quit, what? Like, like, the little, like quit watching The Little Mermaid. Like almost everything, <laughs> almost everything people believe yeah. about romance is screwed yeah. up badly. Mm -hmm. Even the, right, the stuff that's true is screwed up. Mm -hmm. So we were having this conversation yeah. before about romantic for what, right? So like yeah. people want to feel the drug rush of romance. Like, feeling like they're in love. Like, but like, what's that for, right? Because it's a hunger. And the problem with all hungers is that if they're not satiated, they torment you, right? So like, 
there's a lot of people that like enter into these romantic relationships that are like completely doomed or that are that there's real problems with, and they end up being horrifically tormented by them. Right? They produce, they're not healthy, so they produce all kind of drama that torments them, or they can't have the person, so it produces all kind of tormenting drama. Right? Romance is designed to be a, it's a biological function, first of all. Your feelings of love, it's a biological function. So God made it. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. It's a yeah. divine gift, mm -hmm. right? It's a divine gift to drive you towards union in some way, okay? The shallowest but most intense is sexual union, obviously, right? You feel like, oh, like you want to have sex and like you're, like you're in, right? And so, yes, but a lot of it is like embrace. Now, there's an idolatry to embrace, which is acceptance, right? So I'm going to enter into this because I long for acceptance, mm -hmm. which really you shouldn't be looking to that person for. But there is embrace that you can only re have from another person. Companionship, one, oneness, union, um, belief that, that, that you're going to be safe within a long-term relationship, all those kinds of things. And romance is designed to drive you. And then what's supposed to happen is you're driven towards those things, and then you achieve them. Mm -hmm. Right? That's why, like, if you've got young people who are, like, they're making out, but they're like, we're not going to have sex. We're just kind of like, you know, you're like, no, you're not. You're going to have sex. Like, it's just a matter of time if you like. Because when you, as it says in Song of Songs, once you awaken love before it's time, right? It's a hunger that's meant to be satisfied in sexual intercourse. In marriage. In marriage. But like, just yeah. in a sheer biological yeah. sense. Like, if you French kiss right. somebody, yes. that's supposed to end in orgasm. Like, that's how the human body is designed. Like, the idea that you would rev up the car and not put it in gear is just crazy, right? And so, but you've got couples that are like, I mean, everybody wants to like do this stuff, even if you're not supposed to be allowed to do that stuff. But like married people, so for example, married people don't make out. Okay, they don't, they don't, they don't kiss like and make out and then stop, right? Because they're married. Like unless their kid barges in, okay? <laughs> because the, the act of physical intimacy in its beginning is meant to intensify the hunger for the eating. And all romantic hungers are for that. They're for union and for love and for, so I gave I told you this, Lexi and I were on a romantic um, getaway the last two days. We went hiking, which is so romantic. Um, but the second day we were sitting at this restaurant and we were having this conversation about something very intense. It was very difficult. It was like about one of the five things that we've been working on in our marriage like the last four years. And like we had just tried to solve it again and it had failed, okay? And so we're having this, and it was like a two-hour conversation, right? And it was very difficult. And there were times where I like wanted to yell at her, and like she was so frustrated with me. But there were these moments where she was like, okay, I, I'm trying to understand you right now, right? And I was like, okay, the point is not that. It's that I want to meet you in this thing you've asked me for, and I feel like I failed, and it scares me that I've tried three times, and I've failed three times, right? And like when we said those things to each other, like, you could just feel us coming, and we like, like the argument was pushing us apart, and it felt like, and like the idea that she would make war against her inner self-justification mm -hmm. to come closer to me when I had failed her, is that's the essence of romance. That's what everybody wants. It's like a, it's a love story. And like when I was like, okay, dang mm -hmm. it, she's frustrating the heck out of me. I tried to please her. I tried to do what she said, and mm -hmm. she says it's not good enough. Like who does she think she is? And I was like, okay, that's just my mm -hmm. flesh. Lord, please, and, I, and I'm like, no, you are my object. I want to, I'm trying to find you, right? That's romance, okay? That, that's all that is is talking, right? Mm -hmm. But it's like, are you, the, the romance is, are you going to lose me in the complication of the world? 
Am I going to get lost? Are we going to lose ourselves in the woods of life? And are we going to find ourselves apart over the years? Or are you going to refine me every month for 50 years and draw me back to yourself and for us to love each other? Like, is that going to happen? And the fear of that and the wonder of that and the hunger for it. And that hunger is supposed to be met when I say, we're going away for two days. And then like, we find each other again Mm -hmm. for a little while. And the problem then is that even for Christians, like we've taken the world's view of romance, which is that hunger. Just finding hunger. Just the hunger repeated over and over again, which we have to like then create drama to make that hunger again. Right. It's drug use. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's drug use. It's realizing there's an altered state of consciousness and what we call the feeling of love and trying to do things that generate it. And feeling the high. And we're like, but I don't do drugs. Yes, you do. You like use your brain to do dopamine. That was what you do. And like <laughs> that's what that God gave you those chemicals to function along certain idea lines to confirm things, mm-hmm. to create hunger so that you would eat. Like so that you would say, I hunger to be one. How do I talk to this woman or this man so that we grow closer to one? How do we mm-hmm. so that you find each other and that you win and that you like you make war together instead of against each other. Like yeah. all that, that's romance. So what does that look like? Where, where should that be? In the, you were talking about the light, flow of a life. Like if that, where would that fall because of other things that have to happen to right. satisfy that hunger? To so be- I think the historic Christian view, which I think is correct on this, is that marriage is normative. So I, always, I say this distinction all the time, and I, it's so important to get. There's a difference between normal and abnormal. Mm-hmm. So this is normal. If you're not this, you're weird. And therefore, you're an outcast. You're outside of the community, right? And then there's normative, non-normative, which is the majority of people are going to have to be this for a life to function. But not everybody's going to be this for all kinds of different reasons. Sometimes it's for like sickness or like, like, you're, like you're supposed to do something productive mm-hmm. physically, whether you're in the workplace being paid economically, so to speak, or, or not. But you're supposed to live a productive life. Like six days this week, you should work. Like something productive should come out of your life. Okay, if you're like 87 and so frail, you can't hardly get out of bed. You're in a non-normative state of life where you can't do that. And you're not a bad person because you didn't do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so there's lots of ways in which like there's normative and non-normative. And if you're non-normative for a ethically or spiritually viable reason, it's perfectly fine. In Christian faith, I think that singleness as an extended state of being is a non-normative, mm-hmm. yet normal state of being. Mm-hmm. If you're not, you're not weird, but it's not normative, right? Like when God made Adam, he explicitly said, it's not good for him to be alone. And so he creates a woman that's suitable or complementary that he requires. And when he sees her, he erupts into poetic song because this is such a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. And that is how the Bible starts. It's, it's not until, in, now in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says singleness can be better than marriage, right? First of all, the assumption is that's hardly anyone, okay? The assumption is it will be the vast minority because he starts off the chapter saying, look, you're not going to be able to not have sex with each other, so you need to get married. It's better to marry than burn with passion. Because he knows that the sexual drive for most people is so profound that in order to satiate it, they will have to marry, which is a gift of God because God made man and woman for each other. And so the drive of the sexual desire when it is situated ethically, which is you can't have sex outside of marriage, period, full stop. What that does is it drives people into marriages. And you'll be like, well, that doesn't sound like a good reason to marry. Well, it's the only reason people ever do. 
okay? Like, I remember riding in a car in Florida, and I was with three other guys. I mean, let me say it this way. It's the only reason men ever do. Do you understand? Because men and women want very, very different things out of lives and relationships, okay? When you lie to yourself and you say men and women are basically the same, and they, get, they want basically the same thing out of relationships, then you can say they can have an uncoordinated relationship. They can have a, a relationship without a formal agreement because they essentially want the same things. And so if A is getting what he wants, then B is getting what she wants because they want the same things, right? But that's not reality. Men and women don't want the same things out of marriage. And here's a bigger point. Men and women pay into marriage at different rates. Women pay way more up front. Men pay much more in the middle of life. And then women pay more on the back end of life. Right? Because men tend to be increasing in their like, careers and like kicking butt in the world when women have to have children. And so women have to give their beauty, youth, and vitality to create more human beings, and it's enormously destructive to them. Okay? That's a huge, huge, that's why you can't have a starter wife. Because she gave her whole life to have those children. You don't get to go marry that lawyer girl in your class because you're like better than your first wife now. That's, that's called treason and damnation. And that's okay? why it's a risk. That's why it's a risk for women. For women that's why women don't want to drop out of the workforce is because feminism has basically said this. Well, not feminists so much as many feminist moms. The reason you can't do that, right? Because statistically, women economically do better. If they ever drop out of the workforce, if they drop out early and come back early, rather than dropping out late and coming back late. Yeah, but really. Get that? That's really yeah. important. Yeah. Because if you say, well, I'm going to get settled in my career, and then I'm going to come out and have kids, and then I'm going to go back into my self-career, that doesn't happen. Okay, you're not settled in your career anymore if you take more than four years off. It doesn't matter what your career is. Okay. And just as a side note, this is getting back to those subtle messages that we don't realize we're hearing. Like as a woman, we hear the messages, or we believe that my life will end when I have kids. I will, my career will be over. Even if you work. Even if I work. Even yeah. if you work. Because It'll here's the thing done. people don't yeah. understand. Okay. So why do men and women make different amounts of money for doing the same job with the same number of years of experience? Okay. Here's why. Because men work 14% harder. And in the American workplace, generally speaking, in terms of competitiveness, if you work 14% harder, you get 40% more money. It's non-linear, okay? Which means if you work 50 more minutes a day, if you're that guy who comes in a little early, stays a little late, you go over the TPS reports at home a little bit more, if you work 14% more, you get 40% more money, okay? What happens to every college education, butt-kicking woman I've ever worked with when they have their first baby? Some stay home, some work part-time, some come back to work, but none of them work the extra 14% anymore, not one. And they shouldn't. What, are they supposed to be nuts after the middle of the night nursing, lactating on themselves, and they're supposed to be flipping through business reports? Like, that's crazy. Like, and it doesn't make them any happier. And work isn't that much fun. The whole idea that, like, well, I'm going to go to work. After they work for three or four years, they're kind of like, this isn't really that much fun. And so, like, and then they're alone with a baby, and that, that drives them crazy, too. But they realize they're not happy anywhere, and they'd better sort themselves out. <laughs> right? Amen. Yeah. So, so, so that's the thing. Like, yeah. even if you have a baby and you go back to work, and you go back to work full time in the career you came out of, you still are not going to advance as fast as the men around you. Now you might like, well, why can't men and women be 50-50 with kids? Because biologically, they are never going to. Okay, the idea that they're gonna be like 50% child-caring men, and that people are gonna to commit to their careers evenly, that is never going to happen normatively. 
there will be some couples that will be true of. The wife will have gotten a big break at work, and it just makes sense for the, the man to pull back more and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. um, in most of the cases where couples tried that, it worked for less than three years. The man was deeply unhappy, and they flipped it around even though the man had a lower career capacity in the field that they were in, but because like he couldn't do it. like He was just not interested in doing it. Right? There are some things that are biologically you can't get around. Mm -hmm. right? Women's skin is 50% softer. There is a reason why little babies want the woman to hold them, even if you're their dad. Like, you'll, like dads, there'll be this moment where like, it'll be your baby. This is your child, and you are an attentive father. And like, there's another woman there, and she has breasts and softer skin, and your ba the baby's crying, and, you, and she's like, let me hold it. And she, she holds it, and she speaks to it with a woman's voice. She holds it against a woman's bosom and skin, and like, that's it. It quiets down. And you're like, that's wrong. And it is. It's, it's, it's not fair. It's not fair. Life isn't fair. The only way to make life fair or to have parity between the genders in all of human existence that any humans have ever discovered is through lifelong marriage. Right? Because if men and women make different amounts, but they marry each other, who gets all the money? Both of them. Functionally, who spends most of the money? The wife does. <laughs> yep, right. I mean, that's why all the commercials are for you, right? Why do you think it's even women driving the cars now in commercials? Like, there are commercials now where like, there's three people in a car, all the rest are men, but the brunette woman is driving. Why? Because even now, women are purchasing cars, especially smaller SUVs, which Nissan is apparently trying to sell, right? Like, that's just, like, that's the thing, like, here's the thing about life. What you see in commercials that stuff goes through research about what's really happening, right? So everybody else can say, like, sex doesn't sound like, our lives don't revolve around like, how we understand ourselves sexually. And then you drive down the street, and every billboard has a woman's leg on it, disembodied, and it still somehow arouses every man that drives by it. Because the advertisers can't afford to be stupid about reality. They're going to sell what works, what they know works. OK, so where are we? So here's what I hear you saying about, uh -huh. like, with the life phases thing. So dating, we men usually want sex earlier or first. And so they want that. And so if you're having sex when you're dating, that's going to actually delay marriage because yeah. there's no reason to get married, really. For, in the, for men. In the mind of most men, and, yes. And I think, yeah, in the mind of women. Which is think, wrong right, and stupid. Right, yes. And the male version of all this stuff I'm talking about. Yeah. Right? Men are affected by it, too. But just different. They're affected yeah. differently. Right. And that's one of the reasons why women get so pissed. One of the things that I think is true about this. Here, wait, let me just yeah. summarize. <laughs> okay. So that happens. The marriage is delayed. Right. And, but then, like women, I mean, women are delayed in having children, but also they're stuck in this feeling of like, I should stay in my career. Or, so there's like just right. this massive delay, which leads to then you're 50. And men don't and want their wives to become mothers for sexual reasons. Yes. They want sexual access to their wife, and they want their wife to have a sex drive, and they want to have freedom to go out and dates and all this kind of stuff, and they know that a kid radically alters that mm -hmm. because kids radically alter that, mm -hmm. right? And so that's all true. And men are also usually concerned about money. They want to be in a better financial position than they're in. And, of course, with all the things that aren't your fault, like student loan stupidity and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff, you're in a much worse financial position than you've been in, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's all that kind of stuff going on. And so the man's glad for the childbearing to delay because, you know, he wants to have sex every day and with a woman who's not 
exhausted. And like that's all he cares about because he's in his 20s and his his hormonal reboot on his sexual system is like less than 40 minutes. Right? And that's going to be true until he's in his mid 30s. So like a 14-year-old like will masturbate and be ready to do that again in like 14 minutes. Right? But when you're 40 it's kind of like, "Eh, it's not that big a deal. Like it's like what happens is as men get older, that becomes less of a thing. But like you get a 22 year old guy, and they are so hormonally driven sexually that it is unbelievable. Now that's either going to lead them to being fo- hyper focused on sex and being promiscuous and profligate and going through serial relationships and looking for the woman who's most willing to do that, or it's going to drive them to marriage. Mm-hmm. Right? But that's how women hurt each other because women compete to give it up faster. Because they know yeah. that, that, that men, all things being equal, because they're scumbags and they're not disciples, they will drop this woman who has virtue for this woman who doesn't as long as he thinks that there's general parity between the two women. So a godly woman has to be so much better. And it has to be so clear to that man whose mentality is so screwed up that he has, can't see it, right? Because for most young men, usually it requires a mentor. Usually the mentor is like, look, buddy. Like, you're trading two dress sizes for your future happiness. You understand? Which then they'll have to You're insane. And, you know? <laughs> right, like, like an older man gets, like, that sweetness is worth more than, like, cup size. Like, a, any guy who's, like, over 40 and been married for a while, like, gets that. Nobody under about 28 believes that if they're male. And I, so women, I think we believe that because we have the wrong view of romance. We just want... We want romance. We want to be adored by someone. We want to be pursued. And so it feels like that's the way that I get pursued. And whether, you know, like you were, you were saying, the competition between women, it feels like I need to be better in whatever way. Yeah, so yeah. either they give into the sexuality culture right. yeah. or they quit. Mm-hmm. Right? And so they like, so you have women who are, who are like, you know, the Bible says don't adorn yourself and like, with braided hair and fine jewels and blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to be modest and I'm going to write. But they don't, but they actually don't find the place of, of beauty between like, that's modesty. So modesty is essentially not inordinately aggravating the sexual desires of, of onlooking men mm-hmm. while not inordinately promoting yourself among other women. Does that make sense? So let's say a, a woman is per- particularly attractive, right, in terms of like, I don't know, she has nice legs, right? So there's a way where she could f- like fit her whole wardrobe to always accent her greatest asset and to show that she has nicer legs than 85% of the other women around her, right? And what that does is makes the other women hate her because she's elevating herself above them for a reason that is not a proper reason of elevation. And she's also aggravating the sexual desires of men so that they behave worse towards everyone, right? That's immodesty. And so, but, but what Paul is saying, or what Peter is saying in that context is not, women shouldn't try to be lovely. But that there is a way of finding femininity in terms of like how one dresses that is both lovely and not aggravating. That like, and so, but there, but there are Christian women who are just like, they just quit the whole scene. They're just like, oh, they don't, like, like, give me a garbage bag and like, and no, you're allowed to brush your hair. You can wear makeup. Like, but like people shouldn't see your chesticles and like there are all kinds of like ways in which like you can be modest. But modesty doesn't mean being unattractive. It means not inordinately competing with other people around you 
as women and aggravating the sexual desires of men. And that's not the same thing as like not being lovely. And what that produces, we talked about this before, if women are dressing immodestly in terms of looks, what they'll do is they'll get in this arms race of like licentiousness, or in terms of like showing more, and in terms of like spending more money. Like it's like, it's like an mm. arms race. Rather than dressing more creatively, right? If you're like, I'm not gonna try to be hotter than everybody else, but I wanna express beauty, your only other option is through artistry, right? And like, in that way, you can have women that are like, they look like, like the bird kingdom, like there's a thousand different kinds of pretty or lovely. And so they become, women like can express art in the, their, their expression of themselves in ways that are actually enriching to everyone and not detracting from anyone, right? And I think that would be godly. That would mm -hmm. be godly modesty. Mm -hmm. But godly modesty has a form of beauty to it, mm -hmm. right? So Yeah, so you talked a little about even just a small picture of godly modesty, but in a larger picture, why, why is what God says like better? <laughs> better, like yeah. what is his vision and why is it good? Because yeah. I think it can really feel like I don't know if God's way would actually work. Like, it feels like it won't work. Yeah, so. okay. So some of the reason why I'm going off on these little things mm -hmm. is partly because I am. But partly because <laughs> a lot of these things, worldliness is not the opposite of godliness. Okay, that's mm -hmm. one of these you've got to get in your head. Worldliness is not the opposite of godliness. It is a misappropriation and a misuse and an out-of-focusness. Mm -hmm. And so usually if you, if you can explain to somebody what godliness looks like, it sounds like this perfect common sense that, they, that they've never heard before in their lives. Mm -hmm. Like that bit about romance, where I was like, romance is driving towards, it's a hunger that drives you towards a thing mm -hmm. where, that is meant to be a meal of satisfaction. And it's not just sex, but it's belonging and union and finding each other and all those things. And all those things, are, they have nothing to do with romance per se. The romance is a tool leading to a union. And that's the end, right? And like, when you listen to that, you're like, yeah, how could it be anything but that? And you're like, well, but you wouldn't think that watching The Little Mermaid. You know what I mean? Or almost any film. Yeah. Right? Because, because the, it, the focus is always the two coming together rather than the two staying together. Yeah. Like there's almost no films about people staying together and how hard that is. And the marriage is always at the end. Like the wedding is at the end of the movie and then it's like... Right. And the, that's when the romance begins. Yes. Like you, you don't have any real romance. Although all the romance before the marriage is trumpery. Like it's all like, it's all the sale and the getting together and the like whatever. And you don't even know each other yet. You know what I mean? Like... <clears throat> You don't really know the person for like, I don't know, a decade? Like really, really, really know them? And they're constantly changing. So you have to constantly get to know them again. Like I tell, I, you've heard me say this, I tell like guy co-eds sometimes and they're like, I don't think I can do monogamy. Monogamy is so unnatural. I'm like, you don't have to do monogamy. I've been, I've been married to like five women. It's just been the same woman. Like, but over like the 23 years I've known her, she keeps changing into a different woman. You know, like physically, bodily, like there's pregnant Lexi, there's like skinny, I'm on a running kick Lexi, there's like, I'm too busy doing homeschooling, go to the gym Lexi. Like, and then there's like, I'm pissed about this Lexi, or like, let's go on vacation Lexi. And there's like, there's like all these, there's all and these different Lexi. And you can pursue Lexis. all of those Lexi. And yeah. I'm to pursue, it's, yeah. like, it's like I have a harem. You know, and it's like, <laughs> but it's like, but it's, you know, but it's yeah. all her, yeah. you know, and it's like learning to love every facet, every season yeah. of her life. And that is, that's the romance. And I, one of the cop outs I did in dating Lexi before we got married was I said, listen, most guys will be romantic and then either to get you in a bed or to get you to marry them. And then that's it for the romance. And I said, I will be more romantic every year we're married for the rest of our lives. 
Sounds like a good deal. Right? Yeah. Now you can ask her a five for it. <laughs> but like, if you have a godly view of romance, mm -hmm. then until you have a life together, you hardly even have opportunity to be truly romantic. What are you even doing romantically? You're like, you're like meeting for rendezvous. That's not romance. Right? That's like revving up your sex drive. That's all that is, right? And you're getting to know each other. I mean, all courtship is and dating, all that's supposed to be is getting to know each other, to know whether or not this is a suitable person to choose to love the rest of your life. The goal isn't even to fall in love. Your hormones will do that for you. Like if you spend like 100 hours with somebody of the opposite sex and they're not deformed, you're gonna be in love with them. Like have you ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome? When people fall in love with their captors, Right? Like, you can fall in love with Genghis Khan if you just spend time with them. Like, human empathy just produces attraction. Like, like I remember that I was talking to this Christian guy, and he's like, so I'm dating this girl, and I'm just like, I know this sounds shallow, but I just, I don't know if she's attractive enough. And I said, is she a woman? <laughs> right? And he's like, yeah. I was like, then she's attractive enough. Like, like, it, like the, the, and, and pastoral ministry, like, I've, okay, a lot of women don't like me saying this, especially women who think they're very pretty. But I have told men for years, usually in private situations, that I, I advise staying completely away from the top 5% most pretty women in the world. Just completely stay away from them. Don't ask them out. Don't date them. Certainly don't marry them. Just stay completely away from them. And, it's be, and the reason I say that is because they're the most likely to be sexually damaged by far. They've been taught since the day they were born that their looks were more important than their personality and so oftentimes their personalities are radically underdeveloped. They've been taught that sex is about power since they were very young and so they think of sexuality and therefore romance in terms of power relationships unless they've gone through healing. But like all she had to do was be that pretty in this world and she learned that without even knowing she learned it. And so like the guys that I've counseled that were the most unhappy in the sexuality in their marriages are often the men who are married to the most, like the best looking women. The women who everybody else wishes would cheat with them. Those husbands are like, she wanted to have sex with me. And then think how angry you are. Like you land this woman who is super hot, you fight off all the other guys, because you're, you, you're not bigger than your drive towards fertility as a man because you didn't become anything more than that. So your drive to look at a woman to see her capacity for fertility, which we call good looks, right? Which can be contorted by culture, obviously, into languidness mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But usually it's for, it's for fertility robustness, right? And if you don't become more than that as a man, that's all you'll chase. You finally win that by fighting off all the other shallow men that are only chasing that. You win this woman and she thinks of sexuality as power instead of union, your whole life, right? And she thinks you're a jerk. And like, I've had men just like, I haven't sex with my wife in a year, and they're like crying in my office, right? And like, and then I went, I go to my like, I went to my pulmonologist, because I had allergies, right? And she's like, she's like 5'4", 240, permed curly black hair, some pot marks. Her husband thinks he's living in a dream. Because like, Romance is about like being with each other and having sex with your husband and like enjoying each other and like he doesn't have to like, I mean she's just open and she's like not particularly hot but like she's a woman. Like and they get that and like it's great. And so like there's all these things in our heads and mm -hmm. they're just screwed up. And like, and so when I say that, don't think I don't care about women who are very attractive because they have a hard road. Like I feel mm 
I feel very compassionate towards those women because they get treated like sexual objects since the day they are clearly going to be pretty. Um, but it is a fact of statistics that they have such a hard road. Yeah, so what about, like, so you mentioned also um, procreation is part of the cultural mandate. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Yeah, I mean, think about that. I mean, think about that. So, like, what is so why should we have kids? Like, <laughs> what is God's vision for that? Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, your children is the gift that you give the rest of the future history mm-hmm. of the world. Why does it feel so terrible? <laughs> Sometimes. Okay, so <laughs> Not all the time. Okay, so there's, a, there's this book by, I think it's by Ray Baumeister, called Is There Anything Good About Men? Baumeister is not a Christian. He's a psychologist. But he is an inter- interestingly evidence-based psychologist, even though some of his research has been disproved. Um, but he was one of the first people in 2003 to say the whole self-esteem movement was completely wrong. Um, and and that, that was completely evidence-based. Like, it's totally wrong, right? And so one of the things he said in that book, Is There Anything Good About Men? Is he said, okay, here's the thing. So, Mar- so the, the person who had made this most popular in American life is the atheist feminist Margaret Mead. Okay? And Mead said, the function of all human cultures, and almost the only function of all human cultures, is civilizing men. That's it. That's it, man. If you can't civilize men between 13 and 35, they will kill everyone, and they will do all kinds of crazy stuff, and if you can civilize us, civilize them, they will build a society in which everybody has the space to flourish. That's it, man. She's like, that's all there is to it. All the structures, all the dynamics, all the everything is there to civilize men. Now, spoken like a true woman, you know, but like, but part of the reason for that is, is that civilizations move forward on the exploitation of men, right? And feminism has obscured this idea as time has gone on. But the early first wave feminists understood this. That like men give their lives so that everything around them can flourish. If they will do that, everything flourishes. And that's what you mean by exploitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like it's sacrifice. They give their blood, sweat, and life for it. They work yeah. every day of their life, right? And they lay bricks and they just do stuff. And they do all the, all the jobs nobody wants to do, men do. Okay. And almost everybody who dies on the job is a man. Okay. Men are on the oil derricks. Men make up the vast majority of the military. Like any job where you die, any job where like everybody would like to do that, it's all majority women, right? That's why you can't make much money as a social worker. Like there's so many women who want to sit around and tell other people what they ought to do with their lives. Like th- that, there's a lot of people in that market, okay? So demand, supply and demand drives the price down. Do you understand? And that's why programmers make them a lot of money. Who in God's name wants to sit in front of a screen and type all day? Right? So, so if you want to make money, right, you have to do a job that very few people can do and is very undesirable to do. Why do you think sanitation workers make more than social workers? Right? It makes perfect economic sense. Who wants to be a sanitation worker? Nobody, unless you can be in a union and get good health benefits and retire relatively early and get paid a good union wage. Right? And you might be like, well, that's a racket. Well, your trash wouldn't go anywhere because we wouldn't be able to get anybody to do it if that wasn't the case. Well, you've got to pay them more because their job nobody wants. Okay? Jobs everybody wants. You can't make, like, there's all kinds of jobs I would like to, love to do, and I could never feed my family doing them. And you're like, what? Well, don't you want to be a pastor? Being a pastor is not an easy job, especially being a pastor of a larger church. 
right? A lot of you younger people, you're like, someday I'm gonna be the boss because then everybody will work for me, okay? That's what you think when you're not the boss? You know what you think when you are the boss? I have to carry all of these people. They all make their living off of me carrying them. Now, both people may be wrong in how they think, but that's how you will think, right? And so, so are you trying to, you were starting, we were talking about why people should have kids. But you're right. talking about men, men need to like, it starts with the man. Right. And ordering that. Right. And initiating that. Right. Yes. And fundamental to that is that man marrying, and fundamental to that is having children. And now even though men are relatively disinterested in children, especially in the early years of their lives, right, they want children. Men are profoundly driven to want to see the engagement of their fertility, though fundamentally, unless they become fuller human beings, they don't really want to take care of the children they make. Okay? That's why you see this profound problem in the American underclasses of people having all these children that they don't take care of. Men are very driven to, like I was sitting with a, a gentleman I play basketball with, and he's, he's from a demographic underclass that like, would fit this. And, and I was like, so how many kids do you have? He's like, I got 13. And I was like, do you? Do you know any of them? <laughs> and, and like, so this is a guy who like, he's from that underclass and he actually got married and he's raised five of them. Mm -hmm. Like he spent, a, right? And then he's got like another eight because that's, because men want to do that. That's why a lot of men, when they get vasectomies, they'll be like, yeah, it was fine, I got my vasectomy. But if you have lunch with a guy who got his vasectomy like six months ago or whatever, and you're like, so how are you doing with the resentment? And they're like, Can I, am I allowed to talk about that? <laughs> because they resent that they've been made infertile. And they agree with all the reasons. They're like, we're not having kids. I'm staying with my wife. Even if she died of breast cancer in a year, I wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have a second litter with some young woman. Like, I'm probably fine. Like, and yet, like, they're angry about it. Because it's very deep, their desire to see their fertility go out, right? And so that's why marriage is so critical, because, like, that you gotta get that bounded up together. And then the minute a man has a wife, like the number one thing that makes a man make more money is not education. The, the number one thing that makes a man make more money is that he gets married. Women have an enormous persuasive effect. Uh, and it's usually not by nagging, it's usually by the man looking at his now family and realizing that they need to make more money. Mm. Right, and the, and the wife being like, look, I spent the money on this stuff, I'm trying to be a good manager, but this is just what we've got. And they, well, they both want to have kids. And, and then he's like, I need to do something, man. Mm -hmm. And so then he goes out and does something. And most men won't. They'll play video games. and they'll See, this is the problem. with like Women are longing to, oftentimes longing to start their lives, or they're investing in their careers. Men often entirely disengage and waste their lives. They'll like play video games. and like mm -hmm. There's a bunch of younger guys that I play basketball with. And these are, these are what you would classify as like lower class, mm -hmm. socioeconomic, educational guys. But like all they ever talk about is banging hoes, smoking weed, and playing video games. That's their whole yeah. life. Why do you and they're think like 23 that, now. Why is there that difference between men and women, do you think? I think In men, reaction. So like you said, men right. will become like more passive, and women, they want to start their lives, but men disengage. Like why do you Well, because is? if you are a visceral male, like you're not, a, you're not this like fully human disciple mm -hmm. where Jesus is engaging everything, but you're kind of in this more visceral mm -hmm. state. Um, you don't need a woman consistently to get what you want out of life. Mm -hmm. She'll need her. Mm -hmm. Because what you're, the, the drive for fertility expresses itself in the drive for sex. 
And you can get that. There's, there's all kinds of women giving sex because they think they're going to get something for it because women are incredibly naive related to sexuality, right? And so um, once men figure out women, which takes longer for some men than others, but women are incredibly easy to manipulate, right? And so are men. Right, but women tend in to different think, ways. Yeah. Women tend to think that like yeah. that women are so much more complicated than men, and men are really easy to manipulate. And I've learned how to do that, and isn't that great that I have these skills? I have my feminine wiles. Women are just as easy to manipulate. Men can be a little thicker about figuring it out, but like they're really easy to manipulate. Yeah. Right? For example, like you could feel like, oh, well, eventually we'll get married. He loves me. Like yeah, you just yeah. tell a woman what she wants to hear, man. That's all you got to do. Compliment her. Tell her what she wants to hear. Figure out what she's insecure about and fill a little of that hole. It's cocaine. Like, she's done. She'll do whatever you want her to do. Mm. And, like, that's, that's terrifying. Mm -hmm. It's terrifying. But, like, I, listen, I, can, I don't have to take off my shoes to tell you how many women I actually believe are truly impervious to that who are under the age of 35. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. until you really know who you are and know who you are in Christ and Jesus is working in your insecurities, and you have the, the wall of protection of the commands of God, which you absolutely are going to obey. Mm -hmm. You're not safe. Mm -hmm. And you have no constellation of friends and mentors that are being vigilant for you. And so, like, you're just, like, you're like a, like, I was in the North Woods last week, and I, there's this little baby black bear I found. No mother. Just out in the woods with wolves. You know, he's, like, this tall. And I was, like, like I this want... Taller. Like, no, off the table. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, that's pretty tall. Like, not big. And, like, I wanted to take the love, put a little bear home. Yeah. But the problem is, like, with young women, if the minute I would have picked up that little bear to help it, it would have bit me. Right? And the problem is, is that if you're a man or a woman, you're young and you're arrogant, and you think you know something, that when somebody like me says, look, this is how this is, this is and you get pissed. You're like, how dare you? You tell me I'm living my life wrong, and like I don't like this stuff. You're like a sexist or something, and like all the like all the like labels that you've been taught by culture to throw at people who tell you that secular worldliness so is right. So that you right. don't have to hear it. So you don't have to listen. Yeah. So you don't have to feel like you might be doing something wrong, and so you don't have to develop because yeah. human beings are terrified to develop. Development is so hard. It's humiliating. It takes energy. It takes thought. Thought is the most most energy draining thing in the world. Your brain is 4% of your body weight. It uses 20% of your energy. Thinking, like people talk about like thinking is such hard work and like we, we speak derogatorily towards people who don't think very much. Like thinking is enormously difficult. And I mean like physically draining, like most people cannot concentrate. Even like people with like doctorates who write dissertations and like concentration is their livelihood. Almost none of them can concentrate really for more than about 90 minutes. And you, you have to take a break, you have to eat something, and then you have to re-engage. Like you can read a book for longer than that. Some people within their subfield can do it for a little bit longer, but very few. Mm -hmm. And I think that fear of, human, of developing as a human ultimately leads, it comes down to, we don't want to trust God. We want to do, don't want we, to want, to do. we want to be God. <laughs> right, yeah, there's a shortcut to all that yeah. thought, which is to trust God and like listen to yeah. what he says. And like that sounds. But that like a big also is hard. It's also hard. Right. But and yeah. one of the main reasons it's hard is your flesh. Yeah. But a huge is what's what's called worldliness. And worldliness is not just stuff that the world says against the word of God that you're like, oh, I guess I kind of want to do that. No, worldliness is so in you. It's so deep inside of you that there, there are these like unshakable axioms that you absolutely believe. You can't even articulate them that you're so sure about them. And that like nobody could possibly say anything against them. And like the minute anybody like insinuates anything, you're like, ah. Mm -hmm. 
Right? And, and, and then you have these reactions, this kind of like, well, you must be a homophobe or a bigot or a sexist person or a, like there's some, there's some shortcut epitaph you have ready that you've been taught to throw at people when people disturb these ideas, right? Mm -hmm. And until you realize that like these human things related to sex, gender, union, and, and the arc of life and living within the stretch of the arc of life, those things are so deep. Then when people start to unearth them and say, hey, let's talk about these things because I think we're screwed up. It's terrifying. And it's especially terrifying if you're already 26 or you're already 28. Yeah, so what if like, some, we're sitting in this room, someone's sitting in this room and is realizing, oh, I've let worldliness determine what I'm doing. <laughs> what, what should we do <laughs> going forward? Yeah, well, okay, so, so three things I think, right? So one is um, if you screwed up, and you're willing to be like, okay, God, help me, he will, right? And there's, there's like three ways that God will help you, right? The first is, is that God is capable of restoring how you're either behind or what you've lost. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah. I, I mean, if, I don't care if you've had like 60 lovers. Like, you, like that does not, that does not, that's not definitive to your future. You're, the definitive to your future is will you hear the word of God, believe it, and obey it. Today is the day of salvation, mm -hmm. right? And so if you do that, right, one, the book of Joel talks about this time where the, the Jewish people disobeyed God very consistently. And the way he punished them to get their attention with misery was he sent these huge flocks of locusts to eat everything, right? And it destroyed whole years of their lives, right? And at the end of it, Joel comes and he's preaching to them basically the gospel in that context. And he says, God says to you, right, if you repent and believe, I will give you back the years that the locusts have eaten, mm -hmm. right? And so, like, you can't literally give people back years, but you can so change, you can so bless them that it'll feel like though you got those years back. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. And so that's part of the character of God. Part of the character mm -hmm. of God is giving you back what you've already lost functionally in the way he blesses you if you obey him and believe him in the present, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first. Second is you'll figure out how to sort yourself out and figure out what to do. So wisdom will change you, mm -hmm. and you'll become a more substantive person, right? Mm -hmm. I refer to the book Substance for that, right? Um, and third, like, you will, you'll, like you'll, you'll find answers and find a space in which to begin to live some of this stuff out, and, and you'll open yourself up. And the minute you open yourself up truly to all the resources that God would have for you, and you open yourself up to the Word of God written, to submitting yourself to the real Christ, to trying to keep in step with the Spirit, to reading the Word of God written, to invite mentors into your life around you, to actually invite the people you think your friends to really tell you the truth about you, mm -hmm. that they see, and to use different kinds of tools and, and mentors and like actually listening to the preaching that you hear and mm -hmm. like all of that, it can dramatically accelerate your development, mm -hmm. right? The reason why yeah. it takes us so long to develop is because we're so, we're so inert. We don't want to listen, right? Mm -hmm. And, I mean, just think how terrible a place the world would be if human beings became full size in one year. <laughs> right? We're the slowest developing creatures on planet Earth. But we're still way slower. We're way slower than we should be because we don't want to listen. Mm -hmm. The minute you're open to listen, the minute you really take heed of God's wisdom. So read Proverbs chapters 1 to 6 or so to get the point of this. God gives you everything. Everything. It's just like, like all this stuff, like you'd never be able to drive in a hundred years. Just flows in. The word of God makes wise the simple. Right? That means make smart the stupid. Right? It, 
And so you'll, the acceleration of your development will, will happen just so fast. And as that happens, some of the things that have slowed or delayed in your life will go forward. Because some of the things that, that you, you, you would blame on other things aren't for that reason. Like for some people, the reason why they're not attracting attention for somebody who's interested in them to marry, or the reason why the girls you ask out say no, there's something wrong with you. And you've decided it's them, but it's not, right? If it's, if it's a lot of people, like if a lot of guys date you and leave you, or if a lot of guys like don't pay attention to you, or if a, a lot of girls say no to you, Right? And you're like, I must just be ugly. It's not that you're ugly. Right? Like, good looks is like fifth on the female list of things they're really looking for. Right? Courageous strength in man, a man knowing who they are and that they're doing something with their life is number one. Well, number one and number two. Like, if you get those two straight, you can land almost any woman there is. She'll, she'll find all of a sudden that she... She wasn't attracted to you at first, but like you and I, I cannot tell you how many stories you go around and you talk to women and they're like, so did you think your husband was like gorgeous at first? And like, a, you know, like 30, 40% of women will be like, oh, I was attracted to him immediately. And a whole bunch of you are like, well, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but they either got to know yeah. them and they found that they were like a decent man. It's like an emotional attachment that leads to, yeah. Right? yeah. Because what women want, generally speaking, out of a lifelong companionship is, is not like, the man with the eight pack like lying on top of them. Like you have sex like less than 1% of your relationship, right? Like what they want is like everything else. Now, sometimes it takes longer for young people of both sexes to really sort that out. But what they want is like a man who cares about them. Like most men don't listen to women, right? Like you want to talk about manipulating women. All you have to do is listen to a woman. And they like become putty in your hands. Because nobody listens to them. No men. Most of them, their dads didn't listen to them at all. Right, and all you gotta do is be like, that's really interesting. That's a great thought. Have you always thought that? Like, well, tell me more about this. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because we have these holes in our hearts, because worldliness mm -hmm. has aggravated and grown sin. Sin has grown up to create huge wounds in us. Those wounds are gaping holes in our lives, and those holes are ripe opportunities to be manipulated. That's why we're so easy to manipulate. That's why we have the politicians that we have, and we buy the crap that we buy and we live the lives that we do, and we do stuff we don't want to do, and we're busy every minute, and we can't say no to people asking us to do stuff, and we're like, we don't eat healthy, and like, we're so easy to manipulate because we have these holes in us, and so, and other people can see your holes and manipulate you by them, even oftentimes so they don't see theirs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what I hear you saying. And so God will help you sort that out. Yeah. And the stronger yeah. you become, also the more attractive you become, mm -hmm. because like, strength is attractive. Godliness is attractive. In fact, like, I know all kinds of like frat boys out there who are like, you know, like, yeah, I'm screwing around now. But like, I remember my brother saying that like, he ran into these bunch of frat boys at UC Davis and they're like, yeah, we're screwing around with all these girls now. You know, like, he's, they're like, but, you know, those, those college life girls, like, that's the kind of girl I'm gonna marry. Hmm. And my brother's like, no, you're not. <laughs> like, yeah. not unless you like love Jesus and you get your butt in gear and you like quit screwing around with all those other girls. Like, you're not the kind of guy they're gonna marry. Mm -hmm. Right? And, the and vice versa. And the countercultural thing then, especially for younger people who have come out of college or in college, is that the, the thing to work on is yourself, is your own character right. with God and not changing the world or Don't like finding that one thing that you're going to do and that, that perfect spouse or even just perfect boyfriend or whatever. Yeah. Don't like, ever vote for somebody under 30 <laughs> for any office <laughs> of responsibility. And it's because part of it is that, is that scope of life thing. Yeah, we should do questions. Yeah, we questions. should do questions, yeah. So let's yeah. see, just this one last yeah. thing. Part of it is the scope of life thing. Mm -hmm. Your teen years, 
you should be just like absorbing as much as possible. You should find faithful people, absorb as much as possible, and don't do the stupid things your peers are doing that will screw you the heck up emotionally as best as you can. And try to figure out what it means to be a man or a woman because it is totally obscured in the culture you live in. Because the idea that you can date and have like this relationship when you don't even know who you are and you don't even know what a man or a woman really is, is crazy, okay? Then in your like late teens and on, both romantically and productively, right? What you're trying to figure out is you're trying to sort yourself out and you're trying to grow in competence, all kinds of competence, mm -hmm. spiritual competence, heart competence, emotional competence. Like you're just trying to become competent in things. Like Mike told me that he's had guys over his house, like millennial guys over his house, mm -hmm. who have never used a tool. <laughs> never used a tool in their life. He's told me stories about guys who've come over, because he's like in his 60s, right? So when you're in your, and you're like 65 as a Christian, what you want is you want to invite young men over to your house and exchange back for wisdom. That's what you want to do, right? Like they dig a hole, you tell them whether or not they should be dating this girl they're dating. Like that's how that works, okay? And so, but he's handed shovels to guys who are like 24 and they've never dug a hole, right? But I'll tell you, you want to like, be sexy to your wife when you're like 35? Fix the dryer. <laughs> and you learn to do that now. Not, what, not right. then. <laughs> right, do it now. Just call your landlord. Listen, the dryer's broken. I want to take a shot at this before you send the guy, and I'll pay whatever the difference is. If I can't fix it, and it costs like 40 more bucks when he gets here, I'll pay that 40 bucks. Can I have a shot at the dryer? He'll probably say no, but like you can try, like and you can do stuff. But that's part of living in it. That's part of like you get a lot of debt. Then you live in an apartment your whole life. You never have a house. Then you never have to fix anything. Like just these things all compound on each other. Mm -hmm. Okay, sorry. Yep. We should do some questions. Yeah. So we'll get back at a lot of this stuff next time. Yep. But like, I'm trying to like spatter this thing to like. I really right now I just want to like disorient you. My like my goal for this hour is like just to disorient you and like to wake you up to the idea that there's this whole world of beliefs that you have that have nothing to do with God or Christ or his word. They're completely disordered by stuff you haven't even known you've agreed to. And it, these conversations happened and ended and were instruct, instructed in your life before you were even born. And if you feel, if you struggle with anxiety, frustration, right. this might It improves all that kind of stuff. This is probably one reason why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sorry. Yep. So, so uh, we'll talk more about some of this other stuff, but yeah, go ahead. And, and violent disagreements are welcome. Annie. Yeah, so, well, in, on one, in one sense, it gets back to just the creation mandate, where God says, be fruitful, multiply, um, and have dominion and subdue the earth. And having children is how you do that in future generations. Okay, so, for example, um, does anybody know what the average birth rate in all the European countries combined is? 1.8. Half. Half? <laughs> so yeah, so 1.8 would be great. If it was 1.8, that would be like so amazing. It's not, it's about 1.3. And so like extinction, if, you, if any population goes between about, below about 1.8, that, that population has never not gone extinct in the history of the world, okay? With, with perfect healthcare, just to have humans in the next generation, your birth rate has to be 2.1, okay? So here's what we found. We found that when you educate women, Okay, this is going to piss some people off, but this is just a fact. It's, like, it's not sexist. Facts aren't sexist, right? <laughs> if you educate women on the high school level or beyond, and you make basic birth control available to them,
their birth rate will drop below two in one generation. Human beings, so this just shows you how, like, how just wicked we are. If human beings don't have to have children, they don't. They would rather have their own lives and not have their lives be sacrificed to pass on life to a new generation. Okay, we're not rabbits, right? We don't have babies and send them off and like live our lives and it doesn't really bother us. We just like, eat grass. Like, in order for human beings to pass on godly offspring, because remember, Malachi doesn't say, right, you get to the end of the Old Testament and God goes back to the having children thing. And he doesn't say, you should have had more kids. He says, I, the reason why I fault you for your divorces. Okay, so, that, so like this, like his judgment falls on them for like not participating in giving to the temple and to the work of God and to the, to the poor in relationship to that. They're tithing and they're divorced. Those are the two things he says. These are the reasons why you can't be blessed. Okay? And so church, at church, we always talk about the tithing one. Be like, look, if you tithe, it says he'll open up the floodgates of heaven and bless you, right? But he says, he says, no, the first thing he faults them for is that they've divorced the wives of their youth. And he says, because I wanted godly offspring. He wanted new humans, but not just new humans, because new humans can like destroy the world or not. He wanted new humans that were godly. If you are not going to do what it takes to turn out godly humans into the world, for God's sakes, don't reproduce. We have enough idiots, okay? We have enough people that live by their stomach and do whatever they want and destroy the lives of others. We have plenty of those people. And if human beings aren't formed carefully in not just a, a woman's womb, but in the cultural womb she then creates, and then the cultural womb created in the family and in the culture and in the church so that they can grow up into honorable manhood and womanhood in a godly way, they destroy everything around them, usually passive-aggressively, and, and sometimes men, especially younger men, actively, right? We don't need more of those people. Like, be mindful of your carbon footprint. You know what I mean? But listen, there's not that many of those people. The saints are leaven or salt in the earth. We are what preserves what's good in the world, the Bible says, or we're supposed to be. And we're supposed to produce offspring into a new generation that will be the salt and light of that generation. And if you are going to produce children that are salt and light, you can't have too many. Because they are the blessing you give the future. Because you're going to die. You're going to be pretty dead, like, in 100 years. <laughs> and your offspring and their generational offspring are the, are the only gift you can give them that will fundamentally endure directly from you. You can be like, well, I'm going to write a dissertation. Yes, you are. And a second copy of it maybe made at some point. But, like, ideas, like, I mean, like, almost nothing else you do won't be forgotten immediately. Like all the people who have made a difference in your life you don't know about. The people who have really made a difference in your life for the good are not the philosophers you learned about in school. They were the people whose graves you don't visit and whose names you don't even know from two generations before. Do you understand? Graves that are unvisited. That's, that, you see this in Latino culture where they have like the festivals of the dead and like remembering your ancestors. You see this in some Asian cultures too. Like, like Westerners tend to call it like, it's like what's well, ancestor worship. Well, like, you know, it, it could be ancestor worship, but it's like getting at something that's actually very true. That everything that's good about your life, you got from real normal people that did work and that nursed you. And, and that like, had children. And that had children. <laughs> 
right? Yeah. And so I think it's partly the creation mandate. It's partly that God wants godly offspring. I think it's partly the fact that sex, the idea that you could, you could separate sex from fertility is a falsehood we have created since the pill. Like there's nothing more connected in human existence and being than that sex goes along with fertility. Those two go together. And they're supposed to go together. Can I add to that too? Uh, sure. As, so sometimes, like as a woman, I experience this. It can really viscerally feel like my life is going to end when I have children. Like it's going to be empty. I'm going to be alone with this child, just nursing all day. And I felt that very viscerally. You're going to become a cow. Yes. You were a girl, and now you're, now a, you're cow. a cow. Yeah. That's what it feels like. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say that it is true that obedience to God leads to joy. And my life became fuller when I had a baby. I, was, I thought it was going to be empty. And harder. And harder. It was not like joy, not like selfish happiness. I can't go get a latte whenever I want. But it is fuller and it's more full of joy and like real relationships. And, and nobody it, told you you couldn't leave the house. Yeah, you couldn't wear no. shoes anymore. Yeah. Like there's a certain amount yeah. of like, there's a certain amount of like isolation that especially mm-hmm. educated women have in having mm-hmm. their first child because they like, they read the books about like they have to take a nap every two hours yeah. and they can't be around germs and like, Every, and then they, they get educated women get really focused on parenting models because that's mm-hmm. how we function as educated people. Like you learn the fact and then you do the fact. And like, but the problem is you step out of your house and you run into people that aren't doing the fact right. And you're like, well, we can't be around them because like mm-hmm. this is a very impressionable human being. And like, so there's this self-imposed isolation. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's often by white, educated young women, and which you know, is completely unnecessary. And you know what really can happen? This is what happened to me. I was home, so I invited people over. I have more time with my friends. I get to mentor women. It's awesome. Like, I love it, you know? Yeah. So I just wanted to say it's actually great. It's, yeah. It, it yeah. can be, yeah. It can be great. It can be great. It can be great. Okay, so. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking about the art of life, right? <clears throat> so I started off, I became a Christian when I was, like, 22. So I tried right. to wreck my life up until that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so roughly almost, I'm turning 50 this year. I feel like I'm just starting to get wisdom. And, yeah. But... The mentorship process, I want you to speak a little bit about within the body of Christ. Right. I think that is broken down. Mm. It did for me. I didn't have a lot of older people yeah. that I partnered with. I kind of hung around people my age and we're all just kind of figured out how we're screwing things up. And then, yeah. How can we better do that within the body of Christ? Like, I am, I would love to find a 20 some year old guy and teach him how to dig a hole and talk to him about his relationship. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. I have a hard enough time with my own kids who are 20 something and whatever. Um, yeah. So, how can we in the body of Christ kind of care about that? Yeah. Teach younger men and older okay. So, all right. So, f- let's go back to the train wreck life thing for and very briefly, okay? So, one is that I said God can give you back the years of locusts have eaten, right? Which is true in terms of blessing. But what it says in 2 Corinthians 2 is, is that all of the sorrows that you suffer can then be used to comfort others. Mm-hmm. So like if you had a horrible father who like was really terrible to you, if you enter into, the, into Christ, into the body of Christ in such a way is that where you can start to sort that out, that particular wound becomes a expertise spiritually later in a way that other people can't really do it. So all of your wounds through the process of redemption can become the basis and locus of your mentoring in the future. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? So there was a girl that came in a while back that was like really struggling with anxiety and insecurity and like she was like really beside herself. 
And I had had conversations with Jill about her sorting this out over like an eight year period, like in her own life and it being very intense for her. And like, cause you, I don't know if you Jill had leukemia and like that made her terrified of death at like four years old. Like she's been through some crap, okay? That's a technical term there. And then, <laughs> so I was like, you know what you need to meet? And I introduced her to Jill and they've like been friends for like a year, right? So there's that. Okay, so now how does that work? Okay, there's two answers to that question. One is, the church would do less programs. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that keeps us from actually having lives with each other is that we keep doing these activities with each other. Right? That like, so right now I'm teaching everybody. Great, okay. So now what's gonna happen? Well, you're gonna forget most of this when you leave except for the stuff that really emotionally impacted you. Which means the stuff that made you angry is the stuff that will really stick out. Right? <laughs> <clears throat> and then, but I can't mentor all of you personally. We can't all have an appointment this next week, right? So part of it is, is just we'd have to do less activities as a church and just talk a lot more about one-to-one to one-to-one. -to -one. Like my wife was talking yesterday about us doing small group training. She's like, I don't even think you should give advice in small groups. I think that you should decide what advice you wanted to give in the small group. And then the next day you should determine what was just like your self-indulgence of wanting to talk and say you're the first thing that popped into your head, which you should learn to shut up about. And then whatever you think would actually be helpful for the good of the person you want to give advice to, then you call them and you go see them one-on-one, -on -one, and you tell them, after you've prayed about it, what you think might be helpful for them, right? And so even then, even small groups aren't even that great a thing. So here's how this breaks down life stage-wise. The needs in different life stages are different. And so what you do is you learn to provide for the people, the people you need from or can give to what they require, right? So like, one of the reasons why I say, if you're in your 20s, work really, really hard on growing in spiritual substance like sorting out how you get through that stage of life and do it the best that you can no matter what happens and, and the things you can't control. Here's one of the reasons why. Because when you're 35 and you're married and you have a kid and you want a babysitter, right? You want some 20-something that you're mentoring who's available because they're single and like they don't honestly have everything better to do and they can do something for you because you've done a lot for them. You can be like, hey, can you watch my kid next Thursday night for three hours while I go have a moment with my husband? Right? And usually their response is, if they have any sense of gratitude about what you've been doing in their life, is absolutely. I've been waiting for you to offer me an opportunity to, to, to serve you. And they may even like your kid, and your kid probably likes them because they come over, right? And so boom, you've got this thing. Like, and like in your situation, like, you know, you've got a teenage daughter, like, you know, I've got a teenage daughter that's about her age, and like the best shot I've got influencing her besides just trying to be a present father is to do the best I can to mentor the 20-somethings in this church because she gravitates towards them. They speak to her, and sometimes they tell her stuff that I've said in sermons that the 20-something doesn't even remember I said in a sermon. And my words are getting into my daughter through them, sometimes third-hand. Like like, so that sometimes the best I can do is like, if, you, if you're mentoring, if you're intergenerationally living, then those intergenerational groups can bless, you're younger, and then as you bless older and as things move around. So I think part of it is the needs of life stage and being willing to enter into the life stage context of somebody else, right? Like if, you, like if my wife mentors you, you're either folding laundry, like taking the puppy for a walk or a poop, like, like you're doing something that she's gotta get done. Cause she's got four kids and like, she ain't got time for you to sit and drink lattes, right? And your metabolism is twice as fast as hers because she's like older than you, by not much probably. 
right? It's just it's different. It's a different thing. So I think like inviting people, if you can invite people in your life, but you got. I think one of the things that happens is at church, you just got to talk with people, and you got to talk with people who aren't your age. That's why I, whenever I would talk to the grad and career group, I'd always say, "You're not a grown-up until you can come to church and talk to a four-year-old, a twenty-year-old." a 45-year-old, an 86-year-old, and not really think much of it. You don't even think of yourself as like a, a martyr to intergenerational theology. You just like, you know, you just, you just talk to Ingolf because Ingolf was there, and you think he's interesting, and you, you, went, you wanted to ask him about something. And so you had a conversation. That's all there is to it. Because, because as long as you need to be close to people who are your age, you're in a youth group. Okay, that should be insulting to you if you're more than 18. That you need a youth group to function socially. You are not in a, so like, this is, human life breaks down to this. Okay, I know this is a little field from your question. But, the, but like, you got, if you're in the younger generations, you got to get this in your head. There is children, there are children, and there are adults. And that's all there is. Okay, adults are like, it should be down to like 16. But let's just go with 18 to death. That's the cohort you're in. You're not with the 20-somethings. The only reason there's even a grad in career is so the 20-somethings can talk about what it means to be part of the every-somethings. Does that make sense? And if you get that like through your head, because the older people are the ones who can tell you how to advance in your job, can give you a job opportunity, can tell you who you should and shouldn't marry, like all the stuff you need to know, they all know. Does that make sense? So part of it is just getting, even as youth and younger adults, to get intergenerational in how you function. But part of it is like, what I always hear is the 20-something is like, it's hard to talk to older people. And then the more mature generations are like, it's hard to talk to the younger people. Somebody's got to start talking. Okay, like, this is like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Like, just like, go up to people and talk. But the part of the problem is, is that if you don't work on becoming substantive right now, you just don't have that much to offer when you're 35 or 42 or 51. And, that, and nobody wants to hear from you. You've got to, even if you've screwed up a lot of your life, if you've really grappled with it, you'll have something to tell people. Or if you've really grown. But like, if you can't think of a Bible verse that relates to basic things at all, like, why would they come to you? Like, there's, they're pretty godly 20-somethings that like, are in their life stage that they can go running within the park and talk about that stuff. Like, why would they come to you? You've got to be better than the good 20-somethings, which isn't that hard, honestly. Any other questions? But this gets, this gets back to human beings are terrified to develop. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Jesus demands that we develop. Other questions, comments, remarks, final disagreements? There's been talk of like breaking this down into like very clear like 10 classes for like a Sunday class and like ordering the outline really well and like the problem and the solution and the verses and the theology and so this is mostly just like a demolition thing like it's just, <laughs> let's just blow it up and like cause, because here's the thing if you go to this church you are already educated enough smart enough and resourced enough to sort out these problems if you believe they're problems if you think there's anything to what I'm saying you already have the resources to sort it out So like in some ways, all I'm trying to do is kind of blow up some things. Because the minute you get hungry, you're going to find the meal. 
The reason why people end up in such misery about this is that they wander through their 20s and early 30s oftentimes, or teen years, or later than that, and they just have no idea what they're supposed to be looking for, and they don't build the deeper hungers because the deeper hungers come from growth. You've got to grow to have the deeper hungers that drive you to even deeper things. And if you don't do that, you, just, you end up just a shell, and then you wonder why nobody's attracted to you in any sense, right? And, it, and then that hurts. Like, it really hurts. It makes you feel anxious because who wants to keep you employed or whatever or stay with you as a friend or a lover? It makes you depressed because, like, I've been through all these years and now what's going to happen to me? And it makes you frustrated. Like, it creates all kinds of misery. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, last call. All right. Thanks, guys. Chill, why don't you pray? And we'll... Yeah, I will. Uh, God, thank you so much for this time together. And I pray that um, we would have your wisdom. And James says that. If anyone lacks wisdom, we should ask God. So, God, we're asking you to give us wisdom in these things, and um, we pray that we would be able to recognize that um, it's your wisdom and that it compared to that, um, the wisdom of the world is foolishness. Um, yeah, I pray for this next week as people are sorting through this and thinking through their lives um, that you would be near to them and convict them and help them grow. In mm -hmm. Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. So, hey, listen, I'm sorry if some of this stuff was a little scattershot for you. I, don't have to, I didn't have time in my schedule to turn it all into a little book or something. Um, so if you're like, you know, that wasn't as helpful as I hoped. It wasn't as organized. I just, I haven't had time to take all, notes from 15 years and, like, really condense them all and order them in a way that's helpful. So if this creates questions and stuff, feel free to ask. And remember, a lot of these things that I'm saying worldliness-wise, they're not really your fault. Like most of us, we just kind of drank them in with our culture and our mother's milk, and we've never even known we've been unconscious of them. Mm -hmm. And so if like, you're kind of like just finding out about this now, that's not really your fault. And God has an enormous amount of compassion for you, but he wants you to take a step of faith. Mm -hmm. All right, thanks for coming, guys.